0: Before we jump into today's episode, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, Jane, a clinic management software and EMR. Whether you're just starting to do your research or you've been contemplating switching your software for a while now, the Jane team understands that the process can feel intimidating. That's why their goal is to provide you with all the onboarding resources you need to make the switch as soon as possible. Jane offers a personalized call to set up your account, a free data import, and a variety of online resources to get you up and running quickly. And if you ever need a helping hand along the way you'll have access to unlimited phone, email, and chat support included in your Jane subscription. If you're interested in learning more, book a one-on-one demo at Jane.app/switch. And if you decide to make the switch, don't forget to use the code HEAL1MO. That's HEAL1MO at sign up to receive a one-month grace period on your new Jane account.
1: Hello and welcome to Interdisciplinary Heal Wells Healthcare Podcast about healthcare, caring for other human beings, and all the things that lift us up. Um, you may have noticed that this is not the voice of Cal Cates. I am Rebecca Sturgeon. I'm Heal Wells Education Director, sitting in today for Cal Cates and joined by a super special fancy guest host, guest co-host, Justin Magnuson, and super special fancy guest who you will hear about in just a moment. Um, but first of all, there are some things about interdisciplinary that never change, no matter who is sitting in the host chair, and that is, of course, today's pun. So, are you ready? Y'all ready? Okay. Well, so I had a hard time with this because I was going to tell you a joke about time travel, but y'all didn't like it. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Yes.
2: Nice nice misdirection there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love the misdirection. Good delivery. (laughs) Um, So before we get started, I want to remind listeners that this is season five. Can you believe it? Season five of Interdisciplinary. Um, And we are really excited about what we have going on for you in season five in the big old podcast, but also in our Patreon. Um, Hopefully you have already been in there. To see our first bonus episode, which is basically people at Healwell doing things that are kind of wacky. And our first bonus episode was uh, Corey's Cartoon Countdown, where we talked about the amazing um, Japanese anime called Cells at Work. There will be another bonus Patreon to go with this episode. That is the first episode of a feature we are calling Bear and Bunny. And if you're wondering what that is, you'll just have to get on the Patreon and find out. So I hope you'll join us there. Um, for that. But today, I would first of all like to introduce our guest, uh, Kate De Bartolo, who um, will tell us all about her fancy self. Welcome, Kate.
3: Thank you so much
1: for having me.
3: Shall I introduce my fancy self now? Absolutely. Okay, great. Well, I'm decidedly not fancy. Just want to start with that one. Um, I'm Kate DiBartolo. I'm the director of the Conversation Project, which is a public engagement initiative encouraging people to have conversations about the medical care they want now, tomorrow, through the end of life, whenever that may be. Um, I live in Washington, D.C., and uh, I've been home with a sick toddler this week who's luckily back at school right now, but uh, COVID life and pandemic parenting and two working parent households, that's kind of topped of mind for me at the moment. That's how I'm feeling not very fancy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> brings well, you back to life, like
3: sitting on the couch with a sick kid.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's a lot. <laughs> Speaking of, of conversations... Um, but I wanted to, there's so many ways to to go into this, um, but I wanted to start, if you'll indulge me, with a, a story that just happened recently. And I know um, Justin has some personal experience that maybe he'll share with us around end of life care conversations. Um, my, my landlord passed away uh, a week ago. And he had been in the hospital for over four months um, after having fallen and broken his back. And I had the, the the fortunate trust to go and work with him in the hospital. Um, and it was clear over the time that I was working with him that no conversation was happening <laughs> mm. um, about much of anything. Um, that, and that the conversations that were happening were happening on... Um, they weren't meeting in the middle. There were parallel tracks that um, uh, didn't quite parallel tracks about what his goals were. um, Should he leave the hospital? um, Because I think up until right in the end, it was assumed that he would. And the big question of was, would he walk out of the hospital or not? And that was a, a big discrepancy because his wife was very adamant that he would. And he was very adamant that he would not, for for good reason. Um, and I, I watching that happen sort of from a distance, um, it occurred to me like how much uh, angst could have been prevented by having a couple of admittedly difficult conversations. Um, and I wonder how what what the kind of uh, things that that you do and are teaching people to do could have made that situation better. Yeah. Um,
3: I feel like a lot of us probably have stories like that of people we know well or have read about or have seen in a favorite TV show or movie or book or kind of this time where conversations either haven't happened or kind of people talking past each other and not really hearing what the answers are, um, which is one of our big goals, trying to help people express what their wishes for care may be and have those wishes understood, honored, respected either by the healthcare system or by other important people in life. Um, And I feel like too many times people aren't asked or somebody's waiting for permission. They're either waiting for permission to speak up, they want somebody to ask them, or they're waiting for permission maybe from the patient in this case to sound like they're open to the conversation. And so for us, one of our big goals is to normalize having these conversations now before an emergency. We know that a crisis can be a really hard time to learn or to bring things up or people are their most stressed or exhausted or hard to kind of interpret a lot of medical scenarios. And so for us, we really want to encourage people to talk at many stages of life. So I had the conversation when I got married. We had it again after I had my child, you know, if there's a new diagnosis in our life or something, you know, we'll continue to have the conversations so that there's something to be spoken about beforehand of if something unexpected happens to me, what would I want somebody to know? And then if there's a particular diagnosis or we have a a sense of trajectory ahead of us, let's talk about it again. And so I'm often careful because our our work is certainly in the advanced care planning end-of-life space, but we really see it way more upstream from that um, to normalize talking about just what matters to me, what matters to me in my care, what does a good day look like, what would be important for other people to know if they have to make decisions on my behalf, um, if I can't participate in that. So I feel like a theme that we will hear throughout today is about yep, sounds like somebody needed to have a conversation <laughs> or yes, let's have a conversation about that. And and that it doesn't have to be one huge conversation that you only do one time. Conversations can happen with like a question and answer exchange one time while driving in the car that you kind of stow away for later or the ability to continue to bring things up. Um, people can change their mind. You know, you're not kind of signing your life away in blood and you talked about it one time and can never update your answer so that's another reason to keep talking as
1: well yeah Yeah. yeah. and there's a sense I think that people have um, that this needs to be like a sort of formal sit down arrangement where you put out the d- good tablecloths and everybody has their hands folded on the table and you are talking about yeah. the thing um, but I, th- I think it's a good point and I know Justin and I have talked about this too because we're in a book club where we talk about death a lot Um, and things around that Um, but it's a great reminder that this could just be a sort of yeah we watched this episode of Star Trek where somebody had something happen to them and maybe this starts a conversation about well if that was me we'll be
0: right back do you want to change the world so do we Join Healwell this September in Arlington, Virginia when we host the event to remember. There will be classes and conversations. There will be old friends and new ones. And yes, there will be dancing. Come to Healwell Homecoming and let's keep this ball rolling.
3: Yeah. So we have, maybe I should have said this in my fancy introduction, we have a lot of free conversation guides for people. So the conversationproject.org has a lot of resources for individuals who might want to have conversations. So, or you're trying to figure out like, I know I should pick a healthcare proxy, but I don't know how or who I should pick. We have a guide for that. Or someone asked me to be their proxy and I've got no idea what that means. We have a guide for that. Or I'm a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia or a seriously ill child, or I have a serious illness and I just want to think through what my, what my values are. So we have a lot of free guides for people in English, Spanish, and Chinese. And in our conversation starter guide, we give a couple of those open-ended prompts to help people thinking, but we also give icebreakers. And the one that you were just describing, of like we I saw this episode of something And I realized, I don't want that. I need to tell someone. Or I just saw what happened with Aunt Mary, and it made me realize, I need to talk to you about what my wishes would be if that kind of thing happened. So yeah, it doesn't have to be formal sit-down, tablecloth. That might be culturally how one family likes to approach big conversations. That's the easier way to do it. For others, it might be... um, on a, you know driving and not making eye contact with each other, or on a walk, or through an email or a letter, because it's easier to just get my thoughts out and not see your response or reaction. Um, there's a lot of different uh, different ways that it comes up. One of my favorites was a woman in Akron, Ohio, who always made the desserts for her family at Thanksgiving. And she held them all hostage at the end of the meal and said, no pumpkin pie till you tell me how you want to die. (laughs) And made everybody go around the table and share what their wishes were, which worked in her family and would be wildly inappropriate in another. And so I think it's just finding that, you know, if you're trying to bring up your own wishes for someone, you want to do that in a way that's comfortable for you. But if you're trying to elicit the wishes from someone else, really thinking about how would they want to, uh, receive this question or this prompt can be important for making it be a successful conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because it seems like so so much of this is um, really being a good empathetic human, like being able to spot other people's cues. Um, it, Dustin, you had something to say about that, I think.
2: Well, so much of this to me seems about. In- intimacy and vulnerability, and in yeah. relationship. Um, Kate, can I use use an example? Sure. So so I I, I skip the, the the child thing. Um, I I, I love being an, an uncle, um, yeah. but I, I don't have children of my own. But my my spouse and I have been having these similar conversations where we had the initial conversation. It, it took us about so we did the conversation starter kit in like twenty thirteen. I don't mm-hmm. think we got advanced directives for probably a year or two, yeah. but, you know, we had that initial conversation. And so we've kind of revised that over time. And I, I think that you're totally right that it's like, you know, you have to come, kind of come back to it. And it's not just, you know, do I want my heart started or do I want artificial nutrition and hydration? I mean, I think we can pan it back to, gosh, you know, right now we have steps. Um, you know, at what point in our life are the steps not going to be appropriate? Yeah. Or if we can't navigate steps, you know, what are we going to do? Or like we have an old clawfoot bathtub right now, which is great. I love it right now, but I might not love it at 60. And, and, and so people can't see that I'm in my mid 40s now. So, but, you know, thinking about like advanced care planning about not just you know, somebody else making decisions for me if I can't speak for myself, but like really, tr- you know, kind of aligning my life to accommodate my different needs. Yeah. And, um, and, and, I, and I kind of think about, you know, have you thought about that, you know, in, the, in like the what matters most category of, I love that you're th- you know, that you kind of use yourself as an example, but then as you think down the line, like how do we have those conversations and kind of incorporate that sort of to Rebecca's point of being a good human, so it's not just the people that love us, but the people that are caring for us, um, either in a professional or a lay capacity. I mean, we, 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 we kind of need that as part of the, the water we're swimming in. And I think that sometimes it just gets left off in checklists or, you know, you have 15 minutes and it's just kind of goes by the wayside. I, I, is that fair?
3: Yeah, I would definitely encourage folks especially if this is a conversation they're going to have with a healthcare provider, to have done some of this work before an appointment. So rather than showing up and expecting in a 15 minute appointment to cover all the bases, many providers have not been trained to have these conversations. That's a whole other can of worms and something that we're working on with um, health professions students. But to have done, and actually some providers are sending our conversation guides to their patient panel beforehand saying, hey, uh, you know, I do this with all of my patients. If you could take a look at some of these questions first, then bring them in so we can talk about it, that can really help a provider. But I I would say, yes, we want these to be conversations that happen throughout life at many different life points that, that should not be only a medical or legal conversation that gets signed and put in a manila folder in a filing cabinet that nobody knows where it is. Or my favorite of talking to somebody who was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done this. I have all my documents in the safety deposit box. It's good. It's like, that's not that's very useful. <laughs> It's
2: not going to be useful when you. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And the, yeah. uh, in the hospital setting. Like, I feel like sometimes I don't like to talk about horror stories because I actually don't think that's very, um, energizing for people or incentivizing for people. But what I can say is when you hear of these national stories of family members who disagree and somebody's still on life support or maybe didn't want to be, it's often because family or friends were not on the same page. And I would say most providers would tell you rather than some signed document from 10 years ago, being the thing that carries weight, they would feel more comfortable knowing that this person's family and friends are all on the same page, even if it's not entirely clear who the decision maker is, like there's no conflict here. That is so much easier for them to help make a decision. I'm not a lawyer, that's not legal advice, but that's what I hear from a lot of of professionals. And that it doesn't necessarily make sense to ask lay people who are maybe in a currently healthy body to make future medical decisions. It's really hard to know a scenario where you might want CPR or not right away. But you can't, and you can't talk about every hypothetical medical scenario that could play out, but you can talk about your values and your goals and what matters in your life. And I know a lot of providers, you know, will have people say, well, what would you do if this was your mom? It's like, I don't, I don't know your mom. Tell me, does she love ballroom dancing? Does she like to sit in her garden? Would she be content if she's going to stay inside, but she's got her cat there? You know, like, knowing the person is such an important part of this and so when we talk about conversations it's not just how do I bring this up and how do I prompt it and what do we talk about but it's how do I actually listen to what somebody is telling me even if it's not what I might have chosen for myself how can I listen to that honor it ask questions to be sure that I could be in a good place to to make that play out
1: yeah and I, I, that approach like a, a- To gaining an understanding of what actually matters, what someone's values are, that seems like more sustainable in terms of variability. Like I remember a conversation, I think, Justin, this was a conversation we had at the book club around, okay, so like if I'm in a car accident and I have a lot of critical injuries, what I would want at age 42 is maybe different than what I would want at age 72,
2: yeah, I always tell my wife, it's like, you know, I'm, I, I want you to have the choice to make an informed decision. And my informed decision is if I have a heart attack versus falling out of a second story building, you know, like like, like, like I want you to use different calculuses depending on my current state of health and the type of injury. And there's lots of nuance One of my to it.
3: favorite examples. I don't know if everybody can get there. What matters to me? Statement down to a sentence, but I've heard some really good ones. There's a a popular one in Atul Gawande's book, "Being Mortal." You know, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch college football, mm-hmm. I'm in. You know, like I, if you have to make decisions for me, and those things would still be in good standing. Like, please do everything you can to save my life. And I have a colleague. This is coming back to parenting, but. Um, she told her husband, as long as I can intellectually and socially parent our children, I would want you to do everything you can to save my life. I don't care about the physical abilities, but if I can't follow along with what's going on in their life or offer them advice on a social scenario that they are living through, like that's actually what's not worth extreme measures for me. So, but that one sentence helps make almost any decision much more clear for him in her own words, that he can ask for a prognosis, he can help understand what the situation might be, um, to understand her wishes. So in our guides, I think a lot of times people can't come up with those on their own. They might have seen an example that they do or don't like, but we offer scale questions for people to think Mm -hmm. through. So are you concerned about too much care or too little care? People often feel very strongly about that. You know, I'm worried I'm going to I'm not going to receive enough care. I'm going to be in pain. or I really want people to, to, I want a lot of medical intervention. And then others who are worried about too much, or do you want people to do exactly what you said or what they think is best in the moment? Or do you want to know prognosis or not? So we offer a bunch of scale questions um, that help people start to formulate what their wishes might be and how they could start talking about it.
1: Yeah. I I have a, a half-formed question, but I, I want to talk about um, the the receivers of this conversation, like the loved ones who are receiving the information. Um, because we all have, I think, in our heads, um, this is why this the conversation project exists. We all have in our heads ideas of, okay, so this is what's correct for me, or this is what I want. And um, I think it's easy for us to forget that my head is not everybody else's head. Um, especially when it's someone who's so close to you, like your partner or your most beloved loved ones, and I wonder um, what what you found around loved ones receiving information um, about their person's wishes um, and values that doesn't that doesn't jibe with, and yeah. that they may have judgment around.
3: Um, so that's one of the things in our guide for how do you choose a healthcare proxy? So your proxy, I would back up to say, if you have the mental capacity and ability to speak and share your own wishes for care, you will always make your own decisions. There could be times where you are incapacitated and you can't, or you're in surgery or you're, you know, somebody else has to make decisions. That's what we mean by the proxy. Um, And when choosing who your proxy is, we encourage people not to only think, people don't only have to pick a spouse or only pick their firstborn child or their sibling. You actually want to find the person who's most likely to honor the wishes that you have. And we know tons of stories of people who have actually skipped the person that you might originally think. So um, I know one person who's like, it can't be my husband. Like he can't throw away a single plant with a one green leaf left on it. And he will just not listen to what I'm trying to say about, you know, the amount of intervention that I want. And my cousin really understands me. And I would really just rather have my husband by my side, holding my hand, not having to worry about making medical decisions. That's not the role I want him to play. Um, or kind of this Goldilocks example. We heard from one woman who went through four family members before she found somebody who's going to be the right proxy of like, a spouse who was not willing to honor what the wishes were, um, the oldest child who just cried nonstop and couldn't even get through the conversation. It was too emotional and upsetting for her. Mm-hmm. Um, her son, was like, got it, mom, you don't want a single thing. I'll never let them hook you up to a machine. You're good to go now. And she was like, yeah, that's not really what I said. <laughs> and then her youngest child, who was like the last person she originally thought Who actually sat and listened said, okay, I understand depending on your prognosis, you might want this intervention, but if not, you want this. And she's like, okay, took me a while, but I found the person who will actually listen to what I want so she can play that role. And the others can still be important, loved people in my life, but they don't have to have that that job. But they can have some other jobs in helping me.
2: Yeah. I'm going to give a shameless plug for the Conversation Project's video on choosing a healthcare proxy yeah uh, um, so, funny. so Indiana University uses it as part of their advanced care planning training and it's great it's short it's funny but you see this person make a big long list and then it shows like little clip it, you know little snippets of those interactions and you basically see them going down the checklist and seeing them going nope not them not them and I want to say that when I use the conversation starter kit, um, it's been a couple of years now, but I probably had about 20 people and they were all close friends and they went through it. And I had several people at the end say, you know, I thought it was going to be my oldest son and I, I realized that it's not or something similar to that. And something that's sad to me is I've actually used this conversation starter kits and had people come up to me afterwards and say, um, I'm not from here. I'm 75. How do I find a healthcare surrogate? And so you can see people really sometimes struggle. And I think it's a struggle for someone sometimes when they think, oh, my gosh, my spouse is not the right person. And, you know, and then it's also saying, yes, you need to tell them that. Like, And you need to, you know, communicate that it's your best friend or whomever it is but it, it's, we have, it's uh, really interesting
3: so that video that you're describing all of those were real life examples that we heard from people so like the person can't throw away the plant with one green leaf on it like direct quote from someone and we do have there's a whole world of solo agers in particular for whom identifying a healthcare proxy could be a stressful situation and we've seen some interesting um pairings at the community center level or within a congregation to say we got two people who don't have a natural proxy. Could you be each other's proxy? Or, you know, trying to identify it doesn't have to be blood family. It can be friends. It could be a neighbor. It can be, you know, somebody that you would trust and that you have spoken to. So you're putting them in a good position. Um I think when somebody doesn't have as many kind of natural fits, it's all the more important to talk to a healthcare provider to make sure that that your providers are aware of what matters to you, then I would say it is a little more important to get some legal documents in place. Or if you're worried that family is going to fight or not be in agreement, that can be an important point. Um, And then the other thing that I would say is I happen to come from both a very large family and like 20 levels of blended family. There's all sorts of steps and halves and siblings and and I've learned enough in this work how important it is to be sure that even if you don't have really in-depth conversations with everyone, you can still have alerted folks to who the proxy is. So for example, my mom was one of seven. She was the healthcare proxy for her parents, but all the other kids knew that. And so it wasn't gonna be a problem when my mom was the one to start making choices. They hadn't had all of the same in-depth conversations, but they knew that's her territory. I'm dealing with finances. This one's dealing with the house. This one's baking, you know, food to bring in. Um, But it can really help when there are multiple children or multiple people who maybe think that's their role to have just alerted them to the fact that like, Oh, Susie and I have talked about it. She's in charge so that you don't end up with that kind of infighting at the end. And I just want to name, that's actually the part that is in many ways most energizing for me with this work is I think it's really important for somebody's wishes to be honored. So I don't want to negate that. But I think there is this whole world of survivors left after the loss of someone and to have their relationships still be intact, to have less doubt and, and kind of the complexity of grief of did we do the right thing or now I'm not speaking to my sister because we were fighting over what to do with dad's care. Like a lot of this can help alleviate some of that. Um, and that's really important to me as well.
1: Yeah. You know, it, as humans in general, we're not super great (laughs) at, um, You could just pause there. We're not super super great. great. (laughs) Period. uh, Yeah, you're right. Um, (laughs) that's my Ted talk. Thank you. Um, (laughs) but we're not super great at, at, um, hearing things that are unexpected and that maybe seem to cut at what we think is the core of relationship, right? That, that, we think that part of our relationship with our partner is that we are going to be the person who does everything. And maybe that's not right. Um, And we're not super great at hearing that. No, you're not. I, I don't love you any less, but you're not that person. You're all of these other people, but not that one. Um, And I think as humans, we're not super great at, at hearing, you know, we have a negativity bias. All we hear is I'm not that. Um, and And I wonder what what kind of tools or what kind of ideas you have to help people through because that's a kind of grief to understand that okay, I've lost this role in my person's life that I thought was mine.
3: yeah, yeah, I uh, we don't have specific resources for that, although you're helping me think of like future blog posts or something that maybe we should do. Fabulous. We do Absolutely. give sample scripts or sample like ways of framing it. Cause you can also change who your proxy is like 10 years later, maybe that cousin isn't the right person or you've met somebody new in your life and you have to take away the, the job from someone else and that's okay too. And so I think that this, I, I joked about it at the beginning, but it just keeps coming back to conversations and how rather than avoiding talking about it, like bringing it up or small doses or, or helping somebody still feel very, close and attached and that you need them for another reason. And here's what I want your focus to be on. Yeah. You can kind of say, Oh, I don't want you to have to deal with talking to the doctors. Cause you know, my old roommate, she's a, she's a nurse, so she can handle those things. You know, that's why I'm picking her. I would love if you could focus on making sure I'm comfortable and being by my side and focus, you know, you can give people other assignments that can still feel very loved if it's a loving relationship or somebody that you want nearby. Um, I think that's also worth noting. There are plenty of people who don't have loved ones or they are responsible for somebody with whom they do not have a loving relationship. There's a lot of parent child dynamics or sibling dynamics where I might be responsible for making wishes and we have a very fraught relationship. And so I don't want this to all sound hunky dory. Like everybody has a perfect person and you get along really well. And conversation is always easy flowing and nobody has misrepresented ideas. So, um, just to name that and to say we have some tools to try to make it easier and that we find there's also a lot of people who say like, well, we don't need to talk about it because they'll know what I want. They know me well enough to know what I want. And for us, we just want to say that conversations help clarify that either between you and the proxy or between other people. So that's one reason why conversations are really helpful and For others, it's helpful to feel like you can have a say in your care. This doesn't have to all happen at you or to you. There are often choices to be made and you can be a part of that. And if you have made choices throughout your whole life about so many other things that you've done, why would you want to hand this over entirely to somebody else? It is fine if you do. So I just want to add one other example of a woman from Las Vegas who was going through our guides. And at the end, she was like, I actually don't really care about any of this. Like, I don't have an opinion. I'm right in the middle on all these scales. I just want my kids to make the call, which is, that's great. That's fine. She needs to tell her kids that rather than never having had the conversation with them. And all they think is, we've got no idea. Mom never told us. I don't know what she wants. If the conversation there is, guys, if I have to make decisions, I want you two to do what feels best in the moment. That's still a conversation to be had or clarification.
2: Uh, Kate, I want to ask you a, a question about, and I guess this might fall under the translational research department, where you there, there has I have seen research where providers and family members aren't good at predicting, like if if a patient goes in with a, yeah. um, a, a basically a scenario, yeah, um, you know, I mean sometimes there's it's it's, 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 wi- it's wildly divergent. Um, and and both families and providers often are more conservative, meaning they give more treatment Mm -hmm. than what the person would want. And so I I really think that that's an opportunity to say, you know, but I don't know how you would do that and be like, when somebody says, well, I don't think this is important or or I don't, or I think my family will know what to do. When you can, you can point at it and say, actually, there's good evidence to say that You know, it's there's a big divergence. And when people actually have these conversations, the divergence narrows like there's it's closer.
3: Um, I think that it continues to come back to really being sure people understand what matters most to you. So I think, Rebecca, of your neighbor of like how much does walking out of that hospital matter? Right. How much did that matter to him versus other people trying to guess what was going to happen? Right. Occur, or like I'm not willing to be discharged until. Uh, not that you can control when your discharge is, but um, this idea of clarify with people what success would look like. What do you want to be sure does happen, and what right. do you want to be sure does not happen? So even if you just go to the two extremes of, I really don't want to be in pain. So that's the that's the biggest thing I need you to know is I want as much pain medication as possible, even if that means I can't talk to you as much. Like, I'm most afraid of pain. Yeah. Or other people might say, like, I'm most afraid of not being able to communicate with you. Please don't give me meds that would make that not be the case. Like, there's a couple clarifying points that you don't necessarily have to talk about everything, but could help make decisions easier.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that makes me think of, too, that another thing that, that humans are not great at <laughs> sometimes is, um, putting ourselves in situations that are, that we know are going to be uncomfortable, at least at first, even if, you know, the ultimate outcome is beautiful. Cause this is another example. I was talking with a very dear friend who was sitting down, um, with, um, her spouse and they were talking about like end of life care planning because his family has a strong history of dementia. Um, It's almost inevitable, even though who knows. Um, And she was talking about this conversation and how it was a great conversation. She's glad they had it. And she cried the whole way through it. Um, And there's the impulse, like you don't want to, make your person cry, right? If you're a a decent human being as most of us are. Um, So that that seems to be a a kind of barrier for some people. And I I wonder wonder, like how people push through that. Um, Like they've been married for 30 years and this is the first time they've had this conversation. Um, And I I think we would agree that maybe this should have happened earlier, Um, but I'm glad it happened. Um, And maybe it didn't happen for 30 years because of this, like knowing that it was going to be hard.
3: Yeah. I don't want to sugarcoat how the conversations can go. Mm -hmm. I also don't want to scare people off. Like, I guess crying to me is not inherently a bad thing. It can, these can be really hard conversations they can be very loving conversations they can sometimes you're crying just because you love this person so much or you' you can't fathom a life you know without them um, but it's still okay to cry and to be there and to have the conversation and be present for it sometimes they're funny or very loving or a chance to I remember a woman who said, oh, my, my mom was just like, oh, I don't want to be a bother to you. You can just let me go anytime. And it was a chance for her and her brother to say, like, mom, we would, we would love to take care of you. We've been making plans to have you move into our home. Or, you know, like it's a chance to address things in general. Um, and it, that can also be another reason why it doesn't always, if it becomes emotionally overwhelming for either person, you can stop. This doesn't have to be pushed through no matter what, maybe you need to break it up into smaller bits, or this is where putting something in writing first can be helpful. Or, you know, like, I can't look at you while we're having the conversation. I need to sit beside you on a park bench. I want to do this in public because it's too emotional to me to do it in our home. So really thinking about where would it feel comfortable to have these conversations Um, with dementia in particular, we have a guide for caregivers of people with dementia and we always encourage conversations as early as possible, because it always feels too soon until it's too late. Um, but we we also received a letter from a woman who also anticipates some future dimension maybe in her life due to a family history. And so for her, it was helpful to put it in writing to like, to my family, if X happens, I want you to follow what I say now. Don't listen to me in the future. Listen to this. I'm like, here are very explicit things that I do or don't want. And then other people would rather have a much more generalized conversation. And and I guess that's the other thing that I would say here is like, it's all okay. If you feel like you have clarified something or people feel on the same page, you don't have to do it the same way as your neighbor does it or as somebody else does. Um, But it it can be very like loving and restorative at the end. Yeah.
2: So uh, Brene Brown, if you're listening, (laughs) Um, you you need to partner with the conversation project to develop some vulnerability workshops and material here because I, I I don't want to professionalize everything. Um, I I mean, I think a chaplain or a social worker or a a clergy or somebody who's in a caring professional role can help here. But I mean, we really need to be developing these capacities within ourselves to, if, if I love you and you cry I can stay with that and not try and fix it. But that's part stay, of
3: listening right there. Just
2: And so again, like, and I'm kind of joking, but I'm also being serious where it's like, I mean, people out there resonate to different things. Brene Brown seems to have generated a real cottage industry for herself around this. And yeah. I think a lot of it is around like connecting those different skill sets to different life stages and different parts of the, the life continuum. You're
3: making me think Glennon Doyle has a podcast. of so like you can, we can do hard things or so we can, yeah. you know, yeah. like that definitely is a theme right
2: now. Well, it, yeah, so well, Glenn Doyle is one of the people, I, I think she did something recently with Brene, um, Brett Goldstein, um, Roy Kent from Ted Lasso mm-hmm. um, has a podcast that he recently did with, with Brene. And, but, but Brett's is, You've died and gone to heaven, and you can only have at the end of the show. Every episode is you've died and gone to heaven, and you can only take one DVD into your coffin. What is it? But the whole thing is about how movies have impacted you, and like what would you want to take to heaven with you to share in the afterlife? So it's. I mean, I think there's entertaining ways to get into the conversation, but I think a lot of it is skill set. Like like who who am I, and how do I relate to you?
3: We're also finding a lot of intergenerational differences or generational differences and intergenerational differences. So sometimes it's a lot easier for a grandchild to bring this up with a grandparent than Mm -hmm. it is for the adult child Too, Mm -hmm. a grandparent would do anything for the grandkid. And I want to talk to you about this. Uh,
2: Have you done any intergenerational work? Because I feel like, like there is such an opportunity to have somebody at 70, their child and their you know, mid forties and their child in their early twenties to have these conversations because they can be supporting each other across the lifespan.
3: Well, Ian normalized talking about it. I mean, it is a fairly modern issue to be dealing with. So I, I also want to name that that it's medicine and science and technology have gotten so advanced in these last few decades that there are more decisions to be made. And so for, generations people lived in an intergenerational household you you saw death more commonly if you had a heart attack or a stroke or you got cancer there there weren't that many options for treatment and so now that's one and and that's true internationally as well kind of access to high acuity care is part of what has caused these questions to come out which we also saw in birth and labor kind of how medicalized that got for a while and then it's back to being more of like what's your birth plan what do you want you know, come on in with the camcorder and into the bathtub and like that. There was this really medicalized window of time for birth, and I think that we're we're trying to move away from that as well.
2: Uh, our the book club that Rebecca and I have referenced several times. Ta- several times, um, we read The Memory of Old Jack by William. Harry. Oh, yeah. yeah, And what you see in the The Memory of Old Jack is, you know, it's set in the forties, and 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 Old Jack was born right around the Civil War. And so you see his last day on earth as he's reflecting over the last 70 or 80 years, yeah. whatever it is. And so you see multiple generations in a farming community coming together to care for him at different points over the day yeah. and, and how that has been the arc of that's been over his lifetime. And so when he dies, I mean, he dies with people that, that know and have loved him his entire life. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to romanticize it because I'm sure there's things that aren't great. But at the same time, it's like if, if I'm dying right now in 2021, you know, where's the community? It's going to be mostly professionalized where it's going to fall on my spouse. So how do I create relationship where it's not just falling to people who have money or to, you know, a few. And, and I'm going to say spouse, but I mean, that's typically, you know, caregiving roles typically fall to the the, 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 the female spouse. Not typically. Well, I mean. I don't want to generalize, but, you know, it falls to one person.
3: We, um, with that, the generational thing, we're definitely seeing, like our website traffic right now is almost 50%, 35 and under, mm. which is newer, like That's it's awesome. a big change. And, yeah. and and traffic, the 18 to 25 is one of the biggest growing groups. And we've been oh, really wow. trying to on social media and I think there's, there's kind of this death positivity or like this non fear of death movement. I'm not sure that we fit there, but there's also, this is a generation that's got climate change, natural disasters, terrorist Mm -hmm. activity, like the idea that something unexpected could occur to you. Yeah. Um, isn't that foreign of a concept to folks. And so, yeah, I should plan for that. I'm 18. My parents aren't naturally my healthcare proxy anymore. I've just moved out of town. Like I think for us, we not only want to give individuals tools to have conversations today. We want to work on kind of a culture change that is decades in the making of how do we encourage people to not be fearful of these conversations to realize that they can and should have a say in the kind of care they want and to feel prepared and how to do that. Yeah,
1: exactly. You know, that's a good point. Cause that, that generation, like the 20 ish generation, like they were born into a world that was already on fire. Um, and um, I think are, are maybe more open to um, acknowledging that um, than definitely. They don't people. feel as immortal. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, that um, the pandemic has affected that? Yes and no. We saw a huge spike of
3: traffic to our website, downloads of our guides early on. It felt like every week there was a new article coming out about why you need to have your healthcare proxy and do your advance directive and get prepared because everything is terrible. <laughs> and it, particularly among health professionals we're suddenly being like, OK, I'm at risk here. I need to do this. Um what we found with some messaging research is that there's different kinds of people who have taken action on this and ones who haven't. And the ones who haven't generally were a little mistrustful of healthcare system, anxious about, um, family dynamics or relationships costs. Like there's a, there's a whole reason why people didn't do it beforehand. And I feel like that's actually only exacerbated by a pandemic where there was a lot of fear, mistrust, unknown information, no access to, um, to family and friends. And so I think a lot of people who were more likely to have done it in the first place kind of got their eggs in a row and said, Oh yeah, that's been on my to-do list. I need to get that done. And then some other people might've gotten heads a little further into the sand of like, I can't hear this right now. I'm trying to, you know, homeschool a kid and Mm -hmm. like, this is nowhere near the top of my list. And I think that that's worth noting The doing the advanced care planning stuff, like over 90% of us know we should do it. It's yeah. just never the most pressing thing on anybody's list until right. there's a crisis sometimes. Like, I yeah yeah, yeah I know I got to do that, but this weekend I really need to take care of these two things first and you just can kick the can down the road a little further, a little further. Right. Um that's one reason April 16th every year is National Healthcare Decisions Day because mm-hmm. you do, that's a Benjamin Franklin quote of nothing certain in life but death and taxes. So you do your taxes on the 15th, do your advanced care planning on the 16th, but just trying to like nice. pick a reason to say, yep, every April, we'll, we'll revisit our wishes. Or, you know, if you listen to this podcast, like use this as a incentive to say, all right, I, I just got to get that done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I I want to kind of, make sure that we talk about like providers and healthcare providers, um, which you've mentioned um, and alluded to earlier, Kate, but also because so many of our listeners are providers of care who are not necessarily primary care providers, like for example, massage therapists and so forth. Um, and I was looking before we started talking at the the white paper for healthcare providers, the conversation ready, I think is what yeah. it's called. Um, and, and I wonder what, Like, what someone who is not a primary care provider, who is maybe a massage therapist or someone who sees a person on a regular basis and maybe has conversations about their health and their care and their life on a regular basis, like, how can they um, guide people, I guess, into these conversations? Or is it even appropriate? I think it's always
3: good, like... I feel like in marketing, you hear the idea of eight times, eight ways. So if somebody has, their doctor has brought it up, but they didn't really do, you know, do you have a healthcare proxy? I didn't really do anything about it. And then they read an article about it and then they saw it in a TV show. And then their massage therapist brings it up. Like sometimes hearing it, you never know which one is going to be the one that sticks. So yes, I do think that there's, if it's in an appropriate tone or message, then that is good. Um, I we have a new resource also that I can share with you in case you do show notes or, or anything like that yeah. of how to ask for for healthcare providers or clinicians or whoever that team might be, how to ask what matters of older adults. There's a particular piece of, Not that this should only be a conversation for older adults, but in case that resource, it just came out last week. um, That could be helpful. I could share it. But I think getting to know somebody and what matters most to you and starting to learn, like, what are the things you like to do? What's a good day for you? I can imagine that's particularly helpful if you're trying to focus on recuperation from something like, what does success look like? Is it that you feel good enough to get up and go to church that weekend? Is it that you have energy to take a phone call? Is it that you really want to be able to garden vigorously? Like, how can I know what matters to you so we can help make a plan to put that in place? I think that's applicable for every provider. Um, So I think it's always appropriate to, rather than me saying what I think should matter most to you or what we should focus on or in the time that we have here, why don't you tell me what you want so that I can make my suggestions based on that?
2: Yeah. And kind of to echo on that, Kate, I mean, I think that's a really good point that as massage therapists, focusing on what matters most to the person who's coming in within our scope of practice is really important. So if someone comes in and I've, and I learned this the hard way where somebody comes in and it's like, well, I'm having headaches. They you know, they they fill out their questionnaire and it's like headache, 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 you know, neck pain, blah, blah, blah. And my assumption is that's what they want to address, but I don't ask. And then I'm like, so I guess we're gonna be spending a lot of time on your neck. And it's like, oh no, I want you to work on my back. It, 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 you know, I mean it's it's kind of a, a bad example, sort of around advanced care planning, but it's a, you know, really rich to get into what matters to you, why are you here? Yeah,
3: like in the time that we've got Right. Like what what would success look like in terms of your mobility or the way that you feel or the pain that you have or the the abilities you want to have so we can focus on that.
2: And, and 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 24 years of massage therapy, I'm trying to think of like when the advanced directive piece would have played in played a role. And I'm thinking when I was doing hospice house visits, you know, home visits, you know, if someone codes while you're there. Like knowing how to respond, knowing, you know, do do I call nine one one? Do you know, and what that means? If you call nine one one, and the person doesn't have their advanced directive in their most form or their em or so their their post type form or their EMS or DNR form, if if EMS shows up and you've called them, they're going to resuscitate. I mean, so things like that can be. Uh, A little bit on the edge, but I mean, having some preparation to know, gosh, you know, if this person dies in my presence, what are my responsibilities? Because you hear horror stories where, you know, the person that comes in for the two hour, you know, respite care panics when the when the person dies and they call 911 and then you're, you know, that's
3: chain reaction. Yeah. We're reading a lot of, if you give a mouse a cookie in my household right now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, I'm sorry, say that again.
3: We're reading a lot of, if you give a mouse a cookie. So like the chain reaction of <laughs> what happens. I do think, um, so I, I guess it would depend. We shouldn't assume we know everything going on in somebody's life and how close they are. But if, you're, if your clientele tends to be much older or more infirm or like there might be a, a separate level of information you would need to know about advanced care planning or what are these wishes and and I don't know enough about your listeners kind of settings and where they are but I do think for anybody to be focused on what matters like I think that it, it, it's good for the healthcare world to be asking that more of people rather than I assume I know what matters most to you or I'm going to assume what success could be like, it could be somebody we were talking about solo wagers, it could be somebody who's just desperate for human contact and touch and conversation and to feel like important in the moment to somebody else like that is a very valid, what matters most. And that's important to know. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, but e- even on the less, slightly less immediately dramatic <laughs> sign for massage therapist, I'm thinking back to the, the example with which started the podcast. And I wonder, um, in that kind of situation, like, we're, of course, we're bound by things like HIPAA and privacy of our clients and patients and our scope of practice. But being the person to whom the patient was saying, okay, I don't want to walk again for these reasons that were good reasons. Um, and also having access to his spouse, who was like, no, he's going to walk again for these reasons which for her were good reasons. Um, like as, as a person who has heard both sides, when is it appropriate to kind of push these two people to talk to each other? <laughs> yeah. And did I miss an opportunity?
3: Um, I don't know that you missed an opportunity. I think it's always worth... Have you talked to him about that? Have you talked to her about that? Or, you know, like making sure, have you talked to your provider? We have a guide for how do you talk to your healthcare team? And what do you do when they push back at you to be like, oh, we don't need to talk about that yet. You're not that sick. Or you've got two providers who disagree on course of treatment. So we try to make that easier because a lot of people aren't comfortable quote unquote, talking back to a provider or questioning a provider's assessment. Um, And that's an important role for a proxy to play as well. So there could be like, sounds to me like you might want to talk about what you value or like what's most important to you about this so that she understands or so we all understand. It doesn't have to be that they're like against each other, but just that we need to clarify here a little bit more and to encourage her to listen. I think I'm torn sometimes on this idea of like whatever the patient says is the most important thing. They're the center. We need to focus on what they want. And yet I've now talked to a few colleagues who are in situations with a, you know, a significant other who might be very sick. All of the healthcare team is focused on what the sick person wants without much context for like, how does this affect the unit? What is this going to be like for the caregiver when they go home and you've now put in place this whole plan that, that, blows up the entire family system and what right. the kids have to deal with. And, and so really just encouraging, like, what does the person want? And then what does that look like in their world? Maybe the wife in that case was really nervous about like, we've got a lot of stairs we can't move. I need like, she's trying to think ahead to what that might mean. And so it, again, it comes back to like let's have some conversations to understand why we're both feeling that way and whose wishes can be honored easily, which ones might need a little extra help.
2: So I had two different, I'm thinking back over my massage career, where I had two different family members want me to help their person walk again. Mm. And in both cases, I missed an opportunity to engage somebody on the else on the team that could explain that that was not... I mean, I could, I, I felt comfortable saying, you know, that is really outside of my scope of providing hospice based massage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there could have been someone else on the team that could have followed up that could have really explained, you know, and, and asked them what they understood about the person's condition. I think there was just a much deeper conversation that could have happened about what they, what they understood and what they thought might be reasonable. Um, where as a massage therapist in a half an hour session, yeah, like, awesome. yeah, I, 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 I'm, you know, that, that's a lot of responsibility to put on me. And I think at some point in my career, I might've been like, I'm going to do everything I possibly can in the next half an hour to help that person walk again. And it's just really un, unreason. I mean, it, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to look at somebody and say, I can't do that in the time that I have or in this right. care setting. Or in there, you know, and, and I feel like I get at the end of my leash really quickly around saying, I don't know if this person can be helped to walk again with my skill set. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's that's really tricky.
1: Yeah. I wonder if we got more into the habit of having conversations like we're talking about here today, you know, Kate and Justin, just early and often. Having these conversations, if we'd be better at um, giving each other unwelcome news, it's
3: it's a muscle that needs to be exercised. So I, I know you started with the pun. I'm not going to come up with a good one with this, uh, <laughs> muscles. I'm sure there's something there, but, but I, that's actually one of our things of like if we can talk about this when we're not in crisis and practice the words and respecting each other and learning how to, it's not going to be as new to us when there is a moment that's really much more acute or severe, or right now a decision needs to be made because we will have practiced it enough. And I mean, I think that it's, it's also such a big thing of like walk the walk. If you're going to encourage your clients to do this or your patients to do this, Y'all need to have done it too, or do it within your life or within your sphere of influence and get more familiar with language and kinds of questions that come up regularly, um, so that you can feel more comfortable when you're in a situation with somebody new or where it is more pressing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a good point because as much as, um, you know, it's, um, I see Justin at least once a month and we talk about these books and we talk about, you know, our end of life wishes, um, It really wasn't, I'll call myself out here, it really wasn't until the pandemic that, you know, I sat down with my partner. I was like, no, we need to do this. We need to do this. Um, And it was only because he had mentioned something about um, not wanting a certain intervention that I would have automatically done for him had he needed it. And I was like, oh, crap. (laughs)
3: Pandemic definitely made it feel more real of like, oh, this isn't, this could be much closer
1: than... We thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's always closer. It's it's. I'd sent Justin this Stephen Jenkinson clip where he's talking about death as your constant companion. So it's it's always
3: that would be my other thing that I would say. It's like as I've done this work, there's some people like, oh, that must be so depressing. Do <laughs> death and dying all the time, and it's like, no, this is how you want to live your life through the end. Yes. And so that can be another language or framing to use with people of like, I want to know how you want to live. The dying part is is actually kind of short. And for anybody who thinks like, oh, but sometimes you can die over the course of years with cancer, it's like, no, you are living. And how do you want to live that life is important. And accepting mortality is a great way to live. It helps you just kind of like cut the cut the crap out of your life, not sweat the small stuff. Um, so I take it as a great blessing that I am able to focus on this area. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so I, I, I'm laughing because I I did the conversation project one year for National Healthcare Decisions Day with a local congregation. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what happened. I'm not really sure what was said and what was heard. But I think the person heard me saying that you should discuss At some point you should discontinue care, Mm. which is not what I said at all. And I was out front and she comes chasing me out on a walker (laughs) and and she's like, and she catches me and she's like, wait, she's wagging her finger at me. Young man, you know, when you get to be my age and and I was just like, hold on. Like I want you to make whatever decisions you want to make, but I'm just asking you to reflect on what matters to you. And having a system around you that will support those decisions, regardless of what it is, this isn't about my values for you. And, and, but it was this really funny thing of like, sometimes you, you you know, you, you follow the script and you give people the information and they can still like
3: Hear hear,
2: hear it differently.
3: That's a huge part that we are so clear that we have no preference for the type of care somebody would want. And um, Yeah. There was a congregation we worked with. They they did a sermon. It was something like everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one wants to die to get there. (laughs) And then they talked about like, okay, this is why this fits within our theological framework. And so we do a lot of work. Yeah, I'm talking mostly right now about what we do with individuals, but we do a lot of work with community champions, trying to reach people where they live, work, pray, learn, you know, from trusted members of their community because sometimes the healthcare system is not what people trust, or the idea of a lawyer feels very frightening or expensive. And these are all free things that can be done. And hearing it from a clergy person might be the best person to hear it from, or hearing it from your massage therapist, you never know, like, the trust that you have with someone or the, the thought that like, you don't have an ulterior motive here can really go a long way in helping somebody who, who might be thinking about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, y'all are just like singing our song. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> and, and I hope that other people are finding, finding beauty in this as well. Um, this, this has been great. And just like anytime we have a guest on, I'm just like, can we just talk all day? Can we just <laughs> sit around and talk about death all day? Cause that sounds like fun. Um, <laughs> but we do have other things to do, but Kate, I wanted to ask you before we sign off, if there's anything, Um, that you want to make sure that people hear um, with both of their ears and all of their hearts before we go away? I think it's this idea of, if, if you agree that
3: this is an important thing, how to exemplify that work yourself, or this, the importance of this yourself. So Thinking about your own wishes, thinking of how to communicate that with people. You can use our materials, but you, there's other ones to use as well. So um, exemplifying that to yourself so that when you talk about it with others, it's kind of to say, like, I know it was hard when I brought this up with my mom. Here's how it went. But, but you can, you can walk the walk. And to recognize that everybody has a sphere of influence. And so to think about who are the people in your life that you could help normalize this with. I remember there was a group in Memphis who said, we've got 10,000 hospital employees in this city. If each of them could have the conversation with the people in their life, like we could be the snowball that helps normalize this within our community. Yes. And so to recognize that you don't need to wait for somebody else or for other permission, you can be the one who starts to normalize it and share this with your friends. And, um, but that's how it really gets changed. And that's who people want to listen to. Hearing it from a peer or somebody trusted is is so much better than a PSA ad on a TV telling somebody like, yeah, 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 that thing you really need to do it. Hearing from somebody that you trust, who's done it themselves or can answer questions, can go a really long way. So I'm just so grateful that you've you've had me here and
1: can help uh, help share this. Absolutely, and we can be the snowball. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kate, for bringing um, your fancy wisdom here with us today. Thank you, Justin, for um, co-piloting this episode with me today. Um, This has been another episode of Interdisciplinary Season 5. I am your fill-in host, Rebecca Sturgeon, and I am very grateful for all of your ears on this podcast today. If you like what you've heard or you just want to tell us about the kind of feels you're having when listening to the podcast please leave us a review um leave us some stars at where whatever outlet you listen to this podcast it really helps us keep going and making this content for you um i encourage you to check out check out our patreon all the silly and and um other things are happening on the patreon and you also have the potential to get these episodes before anyone else so you can be super fancy that way um, and thank you for listening. Thank you for being here with your ears and your hearts and your person. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org podcast at well.. Thanks for listening.
0: If you enjoy interdisciplinary, you should check out Healwell's new show, The Rub, a podcast about massage therapy. You can click the link in the show notes or find The Rub wherever you listen to podcasts. See you
2: there.